Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. The hilarious thing about the alarm was that it sounded like a robot saying, porn, 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 porn. That and more, but before that, I just want to say that you know we are looking for our winter holiday stories now. We're looking for folks to send us their pitches for stories that take place during Christmas or Hanukkah, Thanksgiving or New Year's even. Think, do you yourself have a wonderful story that happened around the Yuletide? <laughs> or, or do you know someone who does? Have them pitch us by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. And don't forget, if you want to help keep Risk running, we are so, so grateful for our fans' help, our financial help, in keeping everything going. There are so many perks and bonuses to get by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk. So many extra stories and interviews and all sorts of wonderful stuff can be found there. You can also raise your donation if you want over there and get more perks. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is friend lover behind me now and we are calling this week's episode conflicted people in conflict or having mixed feelings about trying to avoid it in a little bit, we're going to hear from Steve Andriolo, a story that he shared recently at one of our caveat shows. But before that, a story that Rosemary Cipriano shared at one of our recent caveat shows. She can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Rosie Sip. And here she is now with a story we call The Great Disendorsement. I went to the most politically active college in the country, American University. Now, I wasn't a very political teenager by any means. Um, I was a good student, an AP student, but I just always felt like I was behind with politics, and I, I just wanted to learn more. And also, people made me feel like crap for not knowing that much about it and not being aware. I didn't want that anymore. Jersey Shore was uh, very big at this time, if you want to place it. Um, and people used to call me Sammy Sweetheart. Not a compliment. 
Uh, so I went to college wanting to shed this persona of being a dumb girl from Long Island. No more Sammy looks or JWoww accent. So naturally, the most politically active school would have the most intense student government. So intense that some of the positions were paid and I was a poor girl and I had a looming mountain of student loan debt waiting for me in the distance, so I had to get involved. I made my way through the ranks first as a freshman. I was a senator for the School of Communications. And then I made my way up to being the executive director of communications and marketing under the secretary's cabinet. Now, secretary sounds like a shit job, but it was actually one of the executive board positions. It was basically what they would call like the marketing officer. It was a right with the president and the vice president. And you would make sure that people knew when events were happening and important advocacy wins and, you know, just communicating, social media, website stuff, all that kind of thing. As a communications student, this was the highest honor. And it was also one of the most highest paying jobs. So I had to run. I decided that it was my time to shine. I'm going to run for student government secretary. But first, I had to get rid of all the competition. If I found out that someone was running, I would make them not run. Um, there was one guy in particular that I was very nervous about, and uh, he was well-liked and even-tempered. I had to get rid of him. I saw him at a party, and I brought him into a quiet corner away from this huge group of people screaming this annoying new song called Call Me Maybe. And I pulled him into a corner, and I said, Trevor, you don't want to run for secretary. Look, you know I'll make your life hell, and I'm actually really qualified for this. I'm screaming over the music, and he laughs nervously. I lean in a little closer. I can smell the natty light on his breath. I lower my voice. I say, look, how about this instead? If you don't run, I'll give you a cabinet position. How does associate secretary sound? The West Wing taught me well. So then I had to declare my candidacy. And it was this whole big process where you had to fill out all this paperwork, bring it up to the Board of Elections in person, and hand it to them in order to have your name on the ballot. Of course, a pretty simple process, but I had to be extra about it. I flanked by my best friend and my campaign manager. I waltzed on into this conference room that was very harshly lit, slammed the paper on the table for this congregation of mostly mousy men in vineyard vines, and I said, I am running for secretary. It was official. And I sat back with my posse and waited in the room to see if anyone else would show up to run against me. No one did. Trevor made the right decision. I was officially running unopposed, which means no one was running against me. Now, uh, I, this is where the fun part began, right? Uh, but my campaign manager still took it very seriously. Um, he would, whenever we went to go uh, eat at our dining hall, he would make me sit on the side of the table that faced oncoming traffic so people would get used to seeing my face. <laughs> I would say the theme of the campaign was transparency and visibility no matter the cost. I got a grant actually for some campaign money and I spent almost all of it on stickers that we put 
everywhere. Do you remember Coney 2012? Those stickers were all over my campus and I put mine right above them. It was a wonderful time and he thought, you know what, like you have to go out for endorsements. That's my campaign manager, you gotta get endorsements. And I thought, okay, fine. I'll meet new people, we'll have some conversations, I'll get an endorsement. Who else were they going to pick? There was no one else. I got endorsements from clubs that I never even attended a single meeting for. And then there was The Eagle, our student newspaper. Now, The Eagle was like most student newspapers where everyone took themselves a little too seriously. And as the student government, we were all taking it way too seriously. They're not real journalists, we're not real politicians, we're just kind of like losers running around with portfolios. That's all we were. <laughs> they did not like me. Uh, they really hated me and the current secretary, uh, Kevin, who had one foot out the door because he was a senior. And the reason why they hated me was under the secretary's cabinet, I started writing press releases. They did not like press releases. I don't really understand it. I thought this was benefiting everybody. You know, I was getting some writing samples out of this. I was practicing my press release writing skills and they were practicing how to sniff out the bullshit. Like everyone wins in this situation, but they didn't see it that way. They thought we were hiding something or that we weren't telling the full truth. And I don't really understand where they got this from because the press releases were just about events and you know some wins here and there that the Senate did and that's about it. Where were we going to commit a white collar crime? We were 20. <laughs> but they didn't see it that way. And I went out for their endorsement because everyone kept telling me it was tradition. You have to get the Eagle endorsement. It's important. You go there, you stroke their egos, and then you see what happens. So the night of the endorsement, I meet up with my campaign manager and my best friend in like this diversity office. My friend used to work there and we would meet up all the time there and just talk and it was just a safe, supportive place. And I'm surrounded by rainbows and messages of love and support and, and all these beautiful things. And my campaign manager is telling me, Rosemary, just be yourself. That's all you can do. Just tell them what you really feel and be yourself. I said, okay, I can do this. So I threw on my thrifted J. Crew blazer and my Payless heels and the one bandage skirt I had that didn't smell like rum. And I walked on over to that conference room where the Eagle had their endorsement hearings. Now this was very late at night, so late that the cleaning staff were around the halls cleaning everything. So I was tired and I was ready to go. I opened this big glass door after taking one large breath and I see the entire Eagle staff sitting in chairs, sitting on tables, sitting on the windowsills and standing on them in order to see, get a better view above all the different people on the staff. The sports editors were there, everybody. Oh, I'm nervous now. I crack some joke and I get a chuckle or two, but that's about it. I am standing in front of a bunch of people who absolutely hate me. So I give them my stump speech. I try to be the confident woman that I am. And I talk about how transparency and communication is so important to me and the Eagle is part of that plan next year. And, and I, I wanna include them on things and all this stuff. And when I was done with my speech, I thought I was through the clear. I felt a little bit better. I was sweating, oh, I was sweating. And then they open it up to questions. 
my first question came from the political editor, and he said to me, how do you propose you'll make student government more transparent when this year you have done nothing but the opposite? Oh, you smug little shit. <laughs> I answer as best as I can, you know, like a real politician. I say, I think this year we've made progress towards becoming a more transparent organization. But as secretary, I'll be able to set my own agenda towards more open lines of communication. After that, it was a coordinated ambush. Question after question, they targeted my personality and my ambitions and my abilities to even do this job. I blacked out at one point. And when it was finally over, I ran out of that room, ran back to that diversity office where my friends and my campaign manager were, busted open the door, and I said, you're not gonna fucking believe what just happened. I take off all of my clothes because I'm sweating so bad. <laughs> And I tell them everything. And I start crying out of nerves, out of anger, out of everything. How could people hate me that much? How? And my campaign manager said, Rosemary, it's okay. You're running unopposed. You're going to get it anyway. They're probably just trying to ruffle your feathers and whatever. But like, you're still going to win. It's okay. You know, okay, you're right. And then the next day, the endorsements came out. And I remember I sat in the office, the student government office, and I was just like refreshing, refreshing, refreshing the Eagle homepage until finally I saw a big headline that said, the Eagles picks for student government. And I click on it and I see their pick for a president, for vice president, for controller. And then I see in big black words, why no secretary, they explain. Rosemary Cipriano is running unopposed, but that doesn't mean she gets our support. This past semester, student government has not been accessible to the public. There are remarkably few students who know when events are happening or who are on the executive board. The job of secretary is primarily to foster an environment of communication between student government and the students. Cipriano's performance as student government executive director of communications and marketing with communications has been lacking. There's been little information sharing between student government, the student body, and the Eagle. Press releases and attempts to limit access do not make for transparency. Cipriano will need to encourage communication. So far, we have only seen the opposite. As a PR student paying way too much money for a degree, that last line stung. I remember just letting out this guttural laugh and then crying and then just rage. You know, the like steps of grieving your reputation because this was online and in print. I spent the entire evening crying and yelling, crying because it was so embarrassing and yelling because it comes up when you Google my name. So potential employers could see that. I spent my entire college career trying to get rid of the pictures of me drinking on Facebook and I'm not gonna get a job because of the student newspaper? Oh no. And what makes matters worse but the comments. The comments on the article were brutal. One of them in particular said, Rosemary Cipriano lives off of exit 62 on the Long Island Expressway. She is Long Island trash. 
if only I had lived off of Exit 63, things would have been much different for me. And for those of you thinking, Rosemary, no one reads the student newspaper. Oh, they did. And the next day, I went into class, and some guy I'd never spoke to before came up to me and said, oh, you're the girl the Eagle tore apart, right? So finally, the election is over, right? We're waiting for the results. We're in this giant event hall. It's all the campaign staff and the campaign managers. And they announced the winners, and obviously I still won. And I actually won the most votes in student government history. So thank you to my campaign manager for all that visibility work, because it, it worked. <laughs> this was all for a paycheck, remember? Um, all I wanted to do was get paid for the time I wasn't studying my ass off was by doing something productive. Instead of getting a minimum wage job, I, I thought I was doing something towards my potential future. But what gets me, though, is that these two serious college newspaper journalists are now at outlets we love and know and actively read their political coverage of the current landscape. I often tell myself, I, I don't think I could ever run for public office today because this story would come out. But I actually think... I'm far more qualified now than I ever was before. Because after my term as secretary, I fixed my focus onto my other major, acting. Thank you so much. <laughs> What's going on here? What are you guys talking about? I think Charlie Brown would make a great candidate for student body president. I'll tell you what, I'll be your campaign manager and the first thing to do is take a poll. We'll find out if you can be elected. That sounds great, but I don't think I could win. I'd hate to run and find that nobody wanted me to be president. Just think, Charlie Brown, how exciting it would be for you if you did win. I have the results of my poll. You'll never be elected, Charlie Brown. You have no way of winning. No way. Thank you. It was my freshman year in high school, and we had just moved to town the year before. I was kind of hoping for a fresh start. As nervous and as anxious as I was about being in a new place, surrounded by new people, I thought this was an opportunity for me to reboot my life. See, I was the skinny, awkward, nervous kid who knew way more about where Optimus Prime stored the matrix of leadership than I did about how a bra clasp worked. And I had permanent welts in my back from being pegged with dodgeballs every day, and my friends and I will. We played Dungeons and Dragons, for God's sake, a, uh, a fact I would go to great lengths to hide from my first real girlfriend who, when I finally admitted it, she was like, oh, Dungeons and Dragons, I know, that's like playing house, right? And I was like, yeah, if playing house is slashing your way through a forest with a plus one longsword, then okay. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. So after we moved, I imagined this kind of grand transformation into one of the popular kids, but I was barely a blip on anyone's radar. But there was this one kid, Min Tam. He had it out for me from day one. I'm not really sure why. 
I don't know, maybe I just had this like face you want to punch. I barely knew him. I knew he had a sister named Emma. She was nice. She smiled a lot and just like radiated happiness. But Min, as a general rule, was angry, just constantly looking for a fight. He had immigrated from Vietnam and he spoke in this way that was kind of quick and, and clipped and made everything he said sound like a challenge. My friend and I were walking down the hallway once and my friend was carrying his backpack and he kind of went to shoulder it. And as he did, it grazed Min's umbros, which he wore even in the dead of winter. He was just like, that's it, you're dead. That's all it took. Another time, his battle cry of food fight in the cafeteria had started the biggest war the lunchroom had ever seen. I mean, there were tables flipped over, food flying, lunch ladies scrambling. Another time, we were in technology class and he had locked the substitute out of the room. I just remember he had convinced all of us to just ignore the substitute who at this point, this British man was just banging on the door, screaming at the top of his lungs, let me the fuck in. And it was hysterical, but like, I wasn't really on board with the joke. And I don't know that anybody else was either, but we were sort of too afraid not to be. Min was just always causing trouble like that. When I found out he had it in for me, I was just always afraid when he was around and anxious. He wasn't a big kid. He was short and thin, but in the locker room before gym class, when he took his shirt off, he was just like this anatomy lesson in musculature. I mean, he was ripped. He was cut. He had the body of Bruce Lee. And I had, like I kind of do now, the body of a 12-year-old boy. So one day, I was in the cafeteria eating lunch. I was sitting with my friends, and, and Min was there somewhere too. I'm not sure where he was, but the bell rings at the end of the period, and you know there's like this mass exodus of kids out of the lunchroom. We're walking, and as we're walking, I can see Min come up beside me, and I can see him just kind of in the blurred peripheral of my vision. But I can tell he's looking at me, and he's staring me down. But I just ignore him. I just kind of keep walking. And then he starts calling me names. You fucking faggot. You fucking pussy. What are you, pussy? What are you, faggot? Like, pretty much just those two names over and over again. He wasn't very creative. So, but again, I just kind of ignore him and keep walking. And then he kind of pushes my backpack a little bit. And I can tell he's just doing whatever he can to get me to throw the first punch. And then there was this sudden stillness, like... When you hold your breath for a really long time and you're about to exhale, like the moment just before you exhale, it was like that. And then suddenly a punch catches me across the face, a ninth grade punch, a sloppy punch. And we're in it, me and Min, this, this tangled mess of punching and shoving. And at this point, everybody in the cafeteria had kind of funneled down the hallway and surrounded us. And Min's barrage is, is just relentless. A punch to the, the shoulder, another one to the side. His attacks, they start to feel precise and like honed in, like thinking he could punch a fly out of the air. And he just keeps coming and he's backing me into a corner. And I, I put my arms up like a, like a boxer and it's just coming fast and furious. And he's just, there's nothing I can do. At this point, the crowd is just like intensified. Everybody's yelling and screaming, but... Time has kind of slowed down, so it's just like, and when everything slows down, the moments of my life, like a flipbook of Polaroids, just kind of fan by in my mind. And I have this profound thought. 
and I find it somewhere between his punches, an epiphany. Am I getting my ass kicked? Because it feels like I'm getting my ass kicked. So I thought I needed to do something, something big, a showstopper of a something. I channeled some forgotten karate lesson, and I thought if I could just push him away long enough to get a roundhouse kick off, I would be okay. I don't know if I knew what a roundhouse kick was back then, and I don't know if I could tell you what one is now, but in my teenage brain, that was the answer. And I did. I pushed him away, and I rotated, and I could just feel in my leg just the years of awkwardness and shyness and quiet and embarrassment. Like, this time I built this huge castle in my backyard for my G.I. Joes, but I was way too old to be playing with G.I. Joes, and the girl I had a crush on showed up. Like, like that embarrassment, it was all pent up in the potential energy of that leg. And I twisted, and I lifted my leg, and I could just feel all the worry just fall away. And I pivot, and I lift my leg, and I just felt like my entire future, my entire life depended on this kick. And I could see it. I could see it snapping Min across the face and kind of lifting him in the air. And he does this barrel roll and he lands in a locker and his arms and legs are hanging out. And then like a second later, a textbook falls on it and the little Tweety birds go around. And I twist and here comes the kick. It was my Danielson moment. The problem was, it was the 90s and I wore my pants way too big and way too low. So I couldn't quite get my leg up high enough and ended up just doing this awkward stomp that missed Min entirely, but was enough to make my pants fall down clear to the ground. <laughs> so I'm standing there, skinny as a sleeve, in front of what felt like thousands of kids, the cool kids, crushes, future girlfriends, parents, teachers, God, if there was such a thing, Emma even just kind of drifted through the crowd like a ghost. And I just remember standing there, these pale legs just gleaming, this puddle of denim around me at the bottom, just like a lighthouse beacon to losers everywhere. As if to say, your life sucks, but I'm standing here in front of the whole school with no pants on, in tidy whities no less. So I went and grabbed my pants, yanked my pants up, and Min sucker punched me across the face. And then a teacher showed up, as they always seem to do out of nowhere, and dragged us off to the principal's office and, and sent us home. The whole fight had ended as quickly as it began. Well, the next day, I was just terrified to go back to school, and the embarrassment was overwhelming. I just felt like all these walls we build up around ourselves as teenagers had just come crumbling down, I just felt like all the layers had been peeled away and that I was just so exposed. Like literally, there was probably ball hair, right? Like I'm just like standing in front of all these kids. Everything I thought that would be different at this new school was the same. But the thing was, when I got to school, everybody was like talking about the fight. And I'm, I'm sure for some people, the image of those skinny white legs were forever burned into their retinas. But some people didn't even remember that my pants had fallen down and that I had done a lot better in the fight than, than I had remembered. 
I remember walking down the hallway and this one kid said to another kid, he was like, that guy's my father. I didn't really understand the logic there. Like he was just like so proud. He was like, fuck you, dad, this guy's in. Um, and there was even one of the, even one of the popular girls said hello to me and like a, that vague, like, eh, I think I know you, but th that was enough. I, I felt cool. I felt like a, a celebrity and the spotlight was on me in a way I never thought it would be. In social studies class, the teacher came in and said that there would be an important announcement at the end of the day. And I'm feeling like the big shot now. I'm like, it's a PSA about the fight, probably the importance of wearing tighty whities versus boxer shorts. And um, Min hadn't come to school that day. In any given week, he was out three out of five days anyway. So when I was like, he's too scared, obviously. And just then, the loudspeaker crackled to life. And it was the principal. He had said that the school had been notified that Emma, Min's sister, had taken her own life the night before. It's exactly how he phrased it, Emma. And I can still hear the gasps and the choked sobs of my classmates. And sitting there, I had this feeling of just shame wash over me or shame mixed with sadness. I think for being so self-centered just a minute ago and the principal went on, counselors would be available, blah, blah, blah. It was all white noise. And I didn't know Emma well, just that one day she was here and now she's not. That's all but I've never in my life felt so small. You see, none of it mattered being cool, being popular. I was worried about all this stupid shit when someone at my very school was at a point where they didn't think there was any way out. So I think of Emma as I walk down the sidewalks of life, how this person or that person might be at the point where the sidewalk ends. And so try to be kinder to people. I didn't have another encounter or fight with men. And in some ways, like, why would I? The, the playing field had been leveled. We were kind of on equal footing now. And I wondered if, if he also realized how silly and insignificant all this high school bullshit was in the face of such a tragedy. Or maybe he just found somebody else to beat up on. I want to say that from that point on, I didn't care what people thought about me. That's not it exactly. But maybe after that point, I, I didn't always think of things in terms of how I saw them or how they only related to me. I want to say that after that, I was like super cool and I was the popular kid, but that is not true. Things were pretty much the same and that was pretty okay. And I think it took something like that for me to see that it was okay. Thank you. I need someone, a person to talk to, someone who cared to love. Could it be you? Could it be you? Situation gets rough, then I start to panic. It's not enough. It's just the habit, a kid, you're sick. Darling, this is it. 
You can all just kiss off into the air Behind my back I can see them stare They'll hurt me bad, but I won't mind They'll hurt me bad, they do it all the time This is Risk. This is the Violent Femmes behind me now. And we just heard from Steve Andriolo. His web series, The Entertainers, is available on YouTube. And you can find him at steveandriolo.com. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Folks, don't forget that on October 20th, Risk is back at Caveat in New York City at 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll also be live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets for the in-person show in New York at Caveat or for the live-stream at risk-show.com tour. It's our October 20th, 7 p.m. Eastern Scary Stories Night. So come on out if you are anywhere near New York City. There's still time to pitch us for our Seattle and Portland shows as well. Seattle is on November 18th. Portland is on the 19th. You can pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you want to come see one of those shows, we're at risk-show.com slash tour. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from our very own David Crabb. David is the host of the Risk Live show out in Los Angeles, which we hope will be returning soon. If you're out there in Los Angeles, you can see David perform with the Groundlings Sunday Company starting in November. He's also one of everyone's favorite teachers over at thestorystudio.org. So without further ado, here is David Crabb. At the Risk Live show in Los Angeles years ago, <laughs> I can't remember what year this is from, <laughs> but here he is now, David Crabb, with a story we call Porn, 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 Porn. 
So when I was uh, just graduating from high school and going to college, I worked at a place called Hastings Books, Music, and Video. Hastings was kind of like the borders of the South. I worked in the music department. Uh, I was in charge of end caps. Some of you might not know what a music store is. A music store had these displays at the end of the CD aisles where my handiwork would come in. I would, like, when the Janet Jackson album Janet came out, like, they would send the posters and the display, and then I would chop them up, and I would make posters, and then I would, like, cut up the posters and take the scissor like a ribbon on a Christmas present, so I made Janet Jackson locks of hair that would cascade, and then where Janet Jackson was holding her naked breast, I would put two racks of the Janet CD extending. Like, I won awards for it. And if you can't tell by that, I obviously was not in the closet during this time in my life in Texas. Uh, I was a gay person in San Marcos, Texas, uh, being my fabulous best. And I, uh, right when I started college, got a promotion to be the head of periodicals. I was the periodicals manager, which meant I was in charge of my favorite thing in the world as an 18-year-old man, magazines. I fucking loved magazines. As a closeted, fabulous teenager in San Antonio, Texas, I fell in love with GQ and Details and Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, where I would smell the pages. I remember rubbing Details, like literally opening it and smearing it on my neck, just because of all the cologne samples. So taking over magazines made me really fucking happy because I was like, that's where the culture is, magazines, and it's my world now, and I manage it. Now, the thing that I didn't realize was that a large part of my job would be about porno. A third to a half of the Hastings magazine racks were porn. You know what I'm talking about? They were in the green bags with, like, the window at the top. So you could see, like, Euro cream, but not, like, the picture of, like, the man sitting on a safety cone that was actually on the cover. And my job was for eight hours at a time and a stocking shift in the back room to take a literal cart, like the cart that used to be, like, three shelves on either side, tons of pornography, and go through them all and bag them, but also put little silver stickers in each one that were designed to set off the alarm system should someone decide to steal porno. So it wasn't just bagging, it was going through pornography for hours at a time. Now, <laughs> as someone who was, had literally been an adult for a heartbeat, like, you, you're going to pay me to look at porn? <laughs> yeah, have, let's do it. However, there's a thing about porn, okay? I think porn for gay people is different as an adolescent experience than straight people. If you're straight, there's that thing where it's like, me and my other friends, we like hang out at John's house and we found his dad's stash and we all like sat around and looked at like his penthouses together. That's not what it's like when you're like a closeted gay 15-year-old, Okay. <laughs> You get porn, you covet it, it's private and dirty and wrong, and it's like a fairy tale of a way you might never be in the world. Do you know what I mean? There's not an aspirational thing where, like, you're with friends being like, those are boobs, I'm going to touch them in, like, the next year. Yeah, high five. That's not the way it works. (laughs) You're alone, you're looking at an erection, and you're like, this is as close as I might ever get before I burn in hell for all eternity, right? That's what porn is like. And when you talk to other gay people that have had their sort of formative experiences with porn, there's a lot of secrets, there's a lot of shame. It wasn't online. Like, you had to go to a porno store and, like, rent a video, but you didn't want to rent it because you never wanted to return it, so you would spend $50 to buy a VHS copy, a blonde on blonde, or whatever the fuck, beach hunks, right? And then, I mean, I've actually talked to gay people. I've had gay friends who lived in the country who would, like, go buy porn read it once, and then run into the woods and bury it. Like, I know someone that did that, like in the dead of night in a rainstorm. Like, that's not who I am. It's crazy, okay? And then you dig it up a few days later because you're like, I need a wank. So, like, porn's fucking weird. And 
it was strange being in the stock room in San Marcos, Texas at Hastings, digging through all this porn, stickering that shit like next to like Jay and Jess, like the two guys who love Stone Temple Pilots and are eating like Schlotsky sandwiches, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, brah, erection, boob, like whatever, you know? Now, the other thing about porn is this, is it's exciting and thrilling to look at, regardless of age for some of you, especially when you're in adolescence and puberty, right? There's so much geriatric porn. I had no idea. I have seen so many pendulous breasts and white hairy balls. There's a lot of little people stuff, which is, I mean, fine. But again, it's a job all of a sudden. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, I have these silver stickers that are security stickers, right? Now, I want to be really respectful of people's porn experiences, okay? So when I first started the job, I would find the little like, subscription card that falls out of the magazine, and I would put the sticker on that. That's not invasive. You can buy your porn for $7.99. You can remove the card, and then you can look at jugs freely without being bothered, right? But I started to fucking, like, resent the job, and there was an anger that would come. I was like, I look at my card of porn, I'd be like, I'll be fucking tits and balls and clits. I don't want to do this today. So I started to abuse the porn with the stickers. Now... When I say that, what I mean is, like, I would be looking in Eurocream, and I would run the sticker, like, up the wax taint of a twink. Just leave it there. So when you were like, oh, you know, I folded the sticker so that it was strategically on a nipple on a different person so that when someone would go to open that part, it would tear the nipple off of either person. (laughs) Because I hated the porn, and my logic was that, you know, I worked in a family store. Like, you know, porn was a part of it. It was like a Story. They had games and stuff. Like, there was not going to be a dad of three like returning a Barney DVD being like, uh, also, I'd like to return this copy of Hancho. The nipples are terribly mutilated uh, on the... You know what I mean? So I was like, fuck you. You're going to live with this porn. <laughs> so this was a few months into the job. And one day, I was in the back in the stock room, and I heard the alarm go off. Now, the hilarious thing about the alarm was that it sounded like a robot saying, porn, 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 porn. And it wasn't always porn. Most of the time, like, if you were in the back and people were on their lunch break, it was exciting. It was like the alarm, because what was going to happen was the manager, which was probably going to be Neil. Neil was, like, the only Jewish guy in all of San Marcos, Texas, and I had a deep thing for, like, hunky, pale Jewish guys, because they were few and far between. I love Neil. Neil would bring back whoever it was and who knew it was going to be like a girl with a bra full of Tony Braxton cassettes or like a guy with pants full of M&M CDs you didn't know and, it would, and then you were going to watch their whole exchange which was Neil being like you know I could call the police like it was a whole fucking thing right no one's going to call the police right you're just going to make the person feel shitty don't come to Hastings again bye bye and then when that person would leave we would all kind of laugh and Neil would feel like a man it was great so I hear the porn 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 I'm there with my fucking just cart of exploded labias and assholes, stickering, drinking a milkshake, living my best life. The, the door opens, and it's Neil, and behind Neil is this, like, 14-year-old Hispanic boy. He's in, like, a crumpled button-down blue shirt, these, like, oversized dockers, and he has hair that's so gelled, it looks like it would, like, cut your finger if you touched it. It's, like, so hard, so stiff, you know? And he's already crying when they come back. And Neil looks at the kid, and he's like, take it, take it out take out what you have, and the boy reaches in his pants and he takes out this rolled up green bag magazine. And he lays it on the counter, and like the boy's crying and Neil's like, so, who are you here with? Are you here alone? And the boy's like, no. He's like, who are you here with? And he's like, I'm here with my, my grandmother. And Neil says, well, I'm gonna go get your grandmother, because it's call the police, because you're a minor and you stole from us, or tell your grandmother. 
And the boy just like bursts into tears and Neil leaves to go get the grandmother. So I'm there alone in the stockroom with this boy who's like weeping, weeping, weeping. And I hear him behind me, I'm like stickering. And I'm trying to create a wall with my body between all my ball sacks and taints and things. Cause I'm like, I don't want him to see even though he just stole something, right? At first he's crying and then it gets like really guttural and then it gets like that there's like prayers in the like <laughs> no, I don't even, like words are in there right like please help me God and I kind of want to turn and be like look it's porn like it's whatever calm down and as I turn around the rolled up magazine has fully unfurled to reveal the title which is and I swear this is a magazine that existed for a year because I've seen all the pages of it nine inch males and I look at it, and I look at the boy, and all of a sudden, the thing that he's been caught in totally transforms in my mind. As a gay person who was outed at 15 against my will by my guidance counselor, Cookie Shard, uh, who is a man, question mark. (laughs) I have a lot of strong feelings about this. It wasn't a choice for me. I was cornered in an office with my dad. He asked me some questions. Uh, They were a little invasive, and I fucking broke. And it wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. And... As I'm thinking about this, I'm looking at this kid, and he looks up at me, and I turn to him, and I'm literally like holding the tools of his undoing. I have like my packing tape, you know, with the handle on it, roll of electric steel metal stickers. I have my green bags, and just like a a palace of pornography that I'm like preparing. And he looks up at me, knowing this, that I'm the guy in the green Hastings apron who's put him here, and he looks up at me, he's crying, and he just says, help me. And I'm like, oh, fucking dude, (laughs) like, what? And I don't know what to say. And Ryza go to answer him. He freaks out. He bursts into tears, and he runs into the staff bathroom. The door is right behind him, and he runs it, and he shuts it, and he locks it. And he locks the door. And I'm kind of having this panic. I'm knocking on the door, and I'm saying, hey, you know, come out. It's going to be okay. And I'm trying to talk him out of there. And as he's in there, I'm thinking, like, I start to actually think my brain first goes to what's in the bathroom. There's Tylenol in there. There's a medical kit. Are there pills? I start to think about all the things. Because, you know, as a goth closeted teenager, I had my fair share of suicide fantasies. Do you know what I mean? I listened to a shitload of Susie and the Banshees, is what I'm saying. Uh, I was moody and misunderstood. I would have the suicide fantasy before I came out and no one understood me. Uh, It was all set to Sinead O'Connor. It involved me being in a bathtub full of white candles. My father would come in. I would have slit my wrist. Uh, He would have thrown up his cowboy hat and taken me out of the bathtub. It was a very, like, sort of platoon pieta tableau. He would have read a beautiful poem I wrote, screamed to the sky, you could have been a poet, and then it would have rained in the bathroom. And he would have understood me. And I wouldn't be there to get that gratification, but it was like that sort of like poetic goth, like, they'll understand me when I'm gone. Like, they're going to pay. But there were times, a few, when the sadness of being queer and feeling so dirty and wrong, there was nothing dramatic or cool about it. I always remember one night when I was like 16, I was in the bathroom in my mom's uh, house, and I was uh, washing my hands. And there was no really big, fabulous story moment to the day. I didn't get called a faggot. I wasn't bullied. Nothing happened. It was just the exhaustion of thinking of the loneliness and where do I bury my porn and who will ever understand me. And I remember washing my hands and this faucet was running out. I opened a little um, vanity and I just remember starting to look at pills, you know, in a very blank, non romantic way and reading like, well, how many Tylenol do you take? How many of this? You know, and to the point that my mom knocked on the door at some point and was like, David, you've been in there 15 minutes with the water running. What's going on? And I, I just didn't, I had checked out. I was actually just sort of like in a really flat way contemplating like, what am I going to do about who I can't be? And I thought about that for the next few minutes when this kid was in the bathroom. And then finally, the door opened and Neil came in. And 
the grandmother that he brought back there, there could not have been a worse audience for what this boy was about to experience. She was like the older Hispanic grandmother from like a Guillermo del Toro horror film. She was wearing all black. She had a huge crucifix around her neck. There was a black hoodie with the hood pulled up. She was literally holding the fucking cross. She had a backpack on. I remember being so weird. You're like 82. Why do you have a black backpack? And she came and she was like, Jorge! Like it was high drama the moment she fucking came into the, like the room. And I was like blocking my tits and my boob. You know, like, ugh. She comes back there. The bathroom door opens, and this kid fucking comes out, and his face looks like a pincushion, covered in tears, red. He's so upset. And as he walks towards her, she looks down at the desk. She grabs the magazine. She looks at it, and she gasps. And then she holds it up to her grandson and says, How could you be stealing Playboy magazine? And Jorge looks at what she's holding. He had been covering his eyes, and he kind of moves his hands, and he doesn't see Nine Inch Males, which had on it a very, very hairy-chested man dressed as an electrician on a power pole uh, with a hard hat holding his own erect, pierced penis while he's, like, like strapped on to, like, the, the, the utility pole. What he sees is a copy of Playboy magazine, there's a brunette, she's in a red negligee, and she is balancing a single scoop of vanilla ice cream between her giant double D boobs and smiling. And as Jorge looks at this, he begins to grin. <laughs> a huge grin. And I see it happening, and as I see it happening, grandmother says, why you laugh at Playboy magazine? And I'm looking at Jorge and I want to be like, girl, you're giving away the game, honey. You have to reel it in. We got to play. We're doing scene work here, girl. I fucking switched them out when you were in there, honey. You got to just cry. You know, we have to like, right? And I'm like really trying to like get him to like reel it back and he doesn't fucking get it because he's so elated just the way that I would be if this was happening. And she freaks out so intensely. She grabs him by the shirt collar, which wasn't a thing I'd never seen anyone do to a child except on like a sitcom. Like, we're getting out of here. Grabs him. And I always remember as they walked out, two hilarious things. First things first, she looked at me and looked at my cart with all my bags and my boobs and porn and dicks and my sticker. And she looked at me and said, I'm so sorry he tried to steal your things. I don't want to be like, honey, I work here. Like, this is not like my private stash. Like, you know. I thought it was so weird. I was like, I just work here. And there was a little one of those diamond glass-shaped windows in the door with, like, the security buttons on it. And I always remember as it shut, looking, and Jorge looking through the little diamond glass, just smiling, just eyes full of tears, just smiling at me like, thank you, sir. Just so happy, right? Um, As they... As they walked out, a few minutes later, I had to walk out because it was time to stock the porn. I got my cart. I went through the door. And I remember at one point, I was seeing um, Jorge's grandmother talk to this guy who was presumably his dad, a huge guy, tattoos, cut off T-shirt with like a farmer tan. I remember he had like a trucker cap, but he had fishing lures hooked into one side of it, like dangling in front of his eye. Like he fucking listened to a shitload of Tim McGraw. And I remember him looking at this guy, this kid that was presumably his son, Jorge, and patting him on the back, looking at him with this, like, little bit of pride. Like, I know what they say is school, but you love pussy. Like, that's, I swear, what was happening. And then I went through this crisis of conscience, like, oh, my God, maybe getting outed by fucking Cookie, that's the jam. Like, that's the way out. Like, that's, 
that's what's supposed to happen. And I started to feel so bad thinking, oh my God, for years from now, this dad has this justification. Jorge's going to come home junior year of high school and be like, guess what? They're letting a boy play Peter Pan this year in the school play and I got the part. And his dad's just going to be like, he stole a Playboy. He stole a Playboy magazine. He stole a Playboy. And that's going to be fucking me. And, you know, I don't know what happened to Jorge. I feel good about saving him from that moment. However, I don't know where he is in the world now, but I hope wherever he is that he can go up to a magazine counter, a porno store, and I hope that he can put his credit card down and say, hello, my name's Jorge Gonzalez, and I would like to buy this copy of Nine Inch Males. Thank you. for this week's episode folks this is miley cyrus behind me now this is from that black mirror episode that was about what well, was about freeing britney which uh we're a lot closer to now but of course this is a cover of nine inch nails before that we heard from the one and only david crab who you can find at davidcrab.net One last time, I want to let you know that at Caveat on October 20th, that is a Wednesday, Wednesday, October 20th at 7 p.m. at Caveat in New York City, we'll be doing our Scary Stories show. Uh, You have to have proof of vaccination. People are wearing masks in the room uh, unless they're eating food because food and drinks are served there as well. And you can also see it via live stream on YouTube. You just get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And folks, don't forget that the storystudio.org is where you'll find our faculty members like David Crabb where you can get storytelling training, storytelling for business, storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, all kinds of different options, in person, online, our video courses that you can watch in your own time, one-on-one training, and our corporate workshops for businesses. That's all at thestorystudio.org. 
And folks, did you know that you can hire me for one-on-one consultations, storytelling training, and so much more? Just look me up at kevinallison.com. You can also get little cameo videos from me, video messages for your friends or family members at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. And look us up on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. I actually did do risk one time before. I told a very interesting story about my breasts, but uh, (laughs) it's okay, no worries. They're still here. Um, (laughs) Mom and dad, thank you for watching. Um, 